and welcome to our Truly Scrumptious podcast, where we talk food festivals, festival food, foodie friends and friends of the festival. In each episode, we will chat to some of our many friends, our celebrity chefs and bakers, food producers, festival team and other people involved in the festival world. We'll even hear some backstage gossip. It's a huge world. It's a hard-working one and great fun too, although a tad stressful at times. My name is Lottie Duncan, and I'm a food presenter, writer, and eater. We want to bring our food festivals to your door, your ears, your living room, and most definitely your kitchen. So draw up your chair, pour yourself something scrumptious, take the weight off your slingbacks, and join us within the world of food, festivals, and foodie types. What a spectacular episode we have for you this week. Janus Domagala, semi-finalist in the latest series of Great British Bake Off, regales his time on set and tells us what happened with that mysterious spring roll. We also meet Sarah Wyndham Lewis, who is not only a honey sommelier, but much more than that. She is an advocate and activist for the bees, and boy, do the bees need her. But first, let's meet another member of our festival team, from the kitchen to the whole festival, Groucho covers it all on camera. He spends the set-up days filming for the How to Put a Festival Together film and then films all over the weekend too, showing off our festivals in the best possible way. He's part of our festival family and we love having him around. He's also pretty bloody brilliant at what he does. So I can see um, the fabulous Groucho um, sitting in his shedit suite, as he likes to call it. It's a shed at the Energy Garden, but it is your edit suite too. And um, and you are our infamous, famous, award-winning <laughs> filmmaker because you make. I mean, you have a, a great history of editing and you know filmmaking. But we're going to go into what you do for us, and that is make us these fantastic festival films every year. Thank you very much. Um, they are brilliant. We love them. You do some great shorts for us. You do lovely bits of animation alongside all the, the illustrations of my father, Robert Duncan. Um, and it's just brilliant what you do. And and you have they work so hard over the weekend. I mean, you right. know, I, I remember back in 2019 on the hottest day of the year, you were still there filming all day, all weekend. It was quite incredible. So when, when was it you actually got involved with Tame Food Festival? It was the last year that it was in the town. That's I right. was a volunteer um, and uh, was rushing around helping wash upstairs with the Women's Institute. And uh, I had my um, high-vis jacket on and clipboard and rushing around, putting the, starting so early in the morning to get everything laid out in the town and then clearing it all up again. So, yes, really loved doing that. Uh, and then I was going to be, well, the first year it was going to be up on the... Uh, showground at Tame, uh, I was going to be doing the volunteers, but uh, had some sad things happen in my life and uh, I ended up not doing that. And you had people filming it, but I ended up editing it. That's right. Was, was fun. And then we realised that I could do both. Uh, I could I can get cameras and got friends to help me film it. Uh, and we had, at that time, four of us rushing around the field filming and then I took it off to the it wasn't my edit suite it was a back bedroom <laughs> uh, with two computers and I edited it all together but then I started made we did Bradford and Avon 
Oh. I'm sorry, Groucho, I've just interrupted you. Winnie has got hold of a, a squeaky toy. In the <laughs> Winnie! No. Carry on, we'll keep that in. It doesn't matter. It's what happens yeah. in the house. <laughs> she'll rush off, she'll bring it back. Yes, she will. No, she's gone down the stairs. I've chucked it down the stairs. Uh. <laughs> sorry, carry on. Right, but Bradford on Avon was fun, something different. Because that started off with just one day, did it? One day that we went to The first one, yeah, it was just one day. I've discovered I can do most of it myself if I rush round and round and round and round. And I normally do two films. I'll do one that is the story of the festival and another one how it all goes on. So if you want to see how everyone, how you put it all together and everyone measures it out and puts the tents up and takes them down and all that kind of thing, all the backstage funnies, they're all in those. And that's what I love about them is because I think people, it's very interesting for people to see how that's done. And that's a, um, another reason why this podcast is so popular is because people are being able to see or listen more, because <laughs> it's a podcast, Lottie, but people yeah. are able to listen um, and hear about what it is that is involved in putting it on. You know, and all the different elements, all the different people involved, the different in, the infrastructure yeah. coming, all of that. I think it's it's a really it's a it's a good thing for people to learn because, you know, they go to these events and they take them all in, um, and there's events all over the country much bigger than ours, but it's just so interesting to see, you know, what the it's done. So it's such a fantastic team. It's such fun, such great fun meeting all those people that I see twice a year. You know, that's what I get as feedback from so many people I speak to is the fact that it's like a family and you know they every, everyone just gels together we all get on you know there is it's very stressful at times and i know yeah. i can be a little stressy at times but generally we all know that we all love each other and it's all absolutely fine and that's what families are about aren't they you can get a little bit arsy with someone and five minutes later you're fine with regards to the films um i think What's so great about you doing them and having done them for a few years is because you worked as a volunteer initially, you kind of got the feel of the event before you started feeling it, filming it. So you know all the different elements to include. Yeah, well, I've always been a foodie, so I always loved my food anyway. So it's always nice to see all the cheese and the cakes and all the, everything like that. And because I was interested in food, it's nice filming it and making the food look good. And then making the people look good who are producing all the food. So uh, yes, it, it's it's a it's, well, it's also a learning thing. I try and make it different every year. Um, although I like to tell a story, so it's sort of beginning of the day all the way through to the end of the day or days. I like to make a film that people can watch and follow through and understand how things work through the day. Exactly. Uh, as well as seeing what's, back, what's backstage. Yeah, because the backstage is fun. I think actually what we should do this year, I was thinking about it, because um, the podcast show talks to so many people working backstage, we should do a little backstage short, I, you know. I wanted, to, I wanted to do that too. Do you? <laughs> you did too? That was on my list, yeah. <laughs> I think it would be fascinating. But also, it's, it's just all, you know, the movements and the logistics of it and how people coming in and coming out mm -hmm. and going on stage and arriving and dogs and friends and it was lo lovely to see all of the the chefs going on stage about to go on stage and when they came off the stage with whatever they've been cooking and some of the stuff they make on the stage is fabulous yeah, uh, and you don't really get to see that whilst you're 
sitting watching from the audience. But if I can film it, you get to see what they've cooked a bit more. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that would be wonderful. I must lose weight running around the fields, trying to shoot everything and make sure everything's been shot. <laughs> of course, you have Sam, my uh, stepbrother. He helps too. Yes, indeed, he helps. Yeah. He's, oh, he's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's lovely when he can come along. And I just, I try, like you trust the team, I trust him. I can just give him a camera and say, go away, do some filming. Uh, and I know what will come back will be perfect for what I need. Is there a favourite part of the festival for you that you like to Ooh. film? Is it the street food? Because it's all kind of steam and smoke and fire. Um, I suppose, well, there's two parts. It's the street food, because, yes, as you say, there's lots of cooking, eggs being broken, flames going up, smoke coming from things, people stirring and chopping and cutting and all sorts of things. But then the lovely food that's in the artisan food section, nice bits of cheese, nice bread, uh, drinks being poured. So visually, both of them are really good. I mean, stuff in the artisan food section, the colours of the of the cakes and the sweets and stuff like that. So, yes, I think, well, being a foodie, uh, <laughs> those are the bits that I like. But then there are, yeah, yes, the kids and the dogs, got to have those in the music, because the, the music is such an important part of the festival now. I think it's we have to keep it fresh all the time. We always try and do that. Always try to add new elements. And so this year we've got the Master Chef, sorry, the Master Chef, the Master Class um, interview tent. It's all going to be one big, one big area. And in yeah. Tame, that's going to be hosted by Susie. In Bradford, the name it's hosted by Simon. And yeah. um, it's where we're going to combine master classes with various people and also chef interviews and baker interviews. I think it will work really well. We always have fun at setup. So in Tame, um, it's a week of setting up because it's such a huge yeah. event. We only have one day at Bradford, which actually is skin of our teeth by the end of it, isn't it? Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think I think we'd really like to have an extra day, but it just it costs so much if you have to have an extra day yeah. on um, security and fencing and everything. But um, that that week at Tame, when we have we do have fun, don't we? We do absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dogs chasing around the field and uh, marking it all out before this, the tents all go up and there's huge crews of men, sweaty men, uh, <laughs> banging their things into the ground and pulling, putting up tents. Yes, I know, the, it's a lot of fun. The tent is great when they, they put those up. They're quite incredible. Bucks wigwams, the way they just suddenly come in and you've got all this infrastructure within a day or two. It's quite amazing. And then we have and our... The guys with the, sorry, the guys with the flags. Yes. They look fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great great for me to film, but also they look good anyway. They look amazing. Well, thank you, Groucho, for everything. Because, I mean, what's so wonderful about what you do is you capture the day, the atmosphere, the feel, the food, the taste, the smells, the you know, everything about it, the humour, the laughing, the joy, you know, sometimes the misery when it's pouring with rain and you're trying to set up. Oh. You capture that as well. <laughs> Uh, fingers crossed that went out this year yeah that was 2019 the hurricane year wasn't it yeah never again um but you do capture it all and it's always you know even if you have to put a little filter on it it always looks sunny in tame bradford Avon, touch wood we've been quite lucky with the weather it so has been yeah so that's been lovely but you do you manage to capture all of this and you know that's through, through years of experience i mean you are an award-winning editor aren't you, you i am indeed it's my award there brilliant 
I can see it. And there's Groucho behind as well. There's a Groucho. There is a Groucho. So let's yeah. just say, why are you called Groucho? Um, one, of, one of my very early jobs, uh, there was another Martin. I'm Martin and he was Martin. And at the time I had a lot more hair and round glasses and just a moustache and I looked like Groucho Marx. So it stuck. <laughs> uh, and I've had credits on TV programmes and things as Groucho. So um, a lot of people don't know who I am. It's in that... <laughs> They call me Groucho. Very quickly, a bit of background about what you did before we were lucky enough to have you at Tame Food Festival and Bradford on Avon Food Festival. Uh, I worked as a videotape editor and doing some video special effects for, for what are called facility companies. So I made TV commercials, I made pop videos, I made TV programmes uh, and sat in a dark room for days on end looking at hundreds of TV screens, joining it all together. Um, but I've always been interested in photography. So this the, one of the nice things about filming the food festivals is I get to do photography and filming as well as editing. So it sort of fulfills all of my creative desires and a bit technical too, because I, I do the computers and things and understand those. So it, yes, and I meet a lot of lovely people. So it co covers everything. Perfect job. And that's, of course, how John knows you. Because John yeah. knew you from years ago in editing, because John's from an editing background as well. Yeah, he, uh, he did an edit for me when I was directing something, which is, <laughs> he reminded me of. Which is, and then we, I can't remember if we overlapped at an advertising agency. Um, you probably did. We, we, I think we did at, at uh, Ogilvy and Mather. Um, he was running the TV department and I joined that. One final question for you, my darling, which is what I ask everybody, and I hope you're ready for it, and I hope you've got an Ooh. idea. So tell me, Groucho, what is your 50 shades of food? Something a little sticky, something you want to eat on your own, with the curtains closed, the front door locked, perhaps in your pyjamas, maybe in the bath. It doesn't matter. What is your 50 shades of food? I think I've got two. <gasps> One of them I had last night, which was sticky toffee pudding with ice cream. Which was oh, very nice. And the other one is a mango. Now, they, they say the best place to eat a mango is in the shower. Yes. So that you, all that sticky goodness can get washed away while you eat it. That sounds amazing. I tell you something, when you do get the ripest, most perfect mango, it does make you want to eat it on your own because of the moaning noises that you probably make as you're biting yeah. it now. Something you don't want anyone else to hear. slurping as you suck the stone. <laughs> That's wonderful. Same with a good juicy peach, though. You get a good juicy peach. Oh, absolutely. I, I yeah. like a nectarine. Yes. I prefer like a nectarine to a fuzzy peach. Yes. But yes, definitely. Yeah. A good one is and really good. And even a juicy pear. I grow pears in the garden, and they've been superb every year. <laughs> Very sweet. Nothing like it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Groucho. We will see you, Bradford on Avon, in June. Yeah. And obviously, again, in September for TAME, as always, part of the, you know, you are the A team, well, you're part of the family team. I think that's what we are. We're a theme, yeah, a family team. Family. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And um, I will see you Pleasure. very, very soon. Thanks. See you soon. We are very excited to be welcoming the gorgeous baker that is Janus Domagala at both festivals this year. In June, he'll be in the interview tent chatting with Simon Brown at Bradford-on-Avon and in September he's on stage baking up a storm at Tame.
But first of all, he's here on this podcast and he is warm, funny and has some wonderful things to say about his experience on Great British Bake Off. I am so excited to be talking to Janice because you, between you and me, you are my favourite, my favourite on uh, last year's Great British Bake Off. I mean, you should have won. You, You was robbed. You was robbed because I thought you were just so joyous to watch. Always smiling, your bakes were bright and colourful. As you can see, I like a bit of colour. I'm in completely in pink today. And um, I like the way you describe yourself, star caker on bake week. <laughs> but I think you melted the hearts of the nation. And sadly, you didn't make it to the, to the final. But for me, you were the uncrowned winner of Great British Bake Off. You're adorable. Um, now, I've got one question. This is the first question, actually. Not, I've got more than one question. But the first question is, did you ever find out where that spring roll went? Well, if it comes to this spring roll, it is still a big mystery. And it was really funny because on the camera, I've actually counted them with a cameraman. And I said, OK, I've made eight spring rolls. And then we sort of started talking. I was talking to a cameraman, having a nice chat with him when I was deep frying them. Because once they are in a deep fryer, it was just to make... A dipping sauce, which takes probably 28 seconds to make. And we were just talking all the time when they were frying. And then I served them and suddenly it was seven. So the cameraman even stopped the show and he was like, no, he's made eight. He's counted in front of me. And they had to, after we filmed, review all the footage to be like, well, something has definitely happened and we don't know what. And if two of you are saying you've made eight, you've definitely made eight. And yes, we have made eight with the cameraman, but unfortunately only seven made it to the deep fat fryer because one has rolled away. Oh, is that what happened? And because I was, yeah, and because I was chatting to him, we both never realized that this happened and one rolled away and... Oh, God, no. It was just, I remember we were all of us at home just looking and going, where's, where's that gone? I mean, you can't just lose a spring roll. <laughs> it was bananas, but it was great fun. And what I loved about all your bakes, and, and I found out this afterwards, actually, it was the fact that every week you did one in a different colour of the rainbow. That was my T-shirts, yes. I was wearing T-shirts that were rainbow colours, and every single week I was wearing one of the uh, progressive pride flag colours. And actually, there is nine colours on the flag, and I've managed, I mean, there's more than nine, but... You can squeeze them into nine categories and I've basically wore them all. So I've achieved exactly what I wanted to achieve. I mean, being on such a big show, you need to go with an idea and you need to go representing something because then it means more to you as well. And I think viewers see it as well, that you're actually doing something that really matters. Yeah. And... When you were being judged, you know, by Paul and Prue, who who were you most sort of wanting to impress? I mean, from bake number one, you could clearly see that the judge I wanted to impress the most was Prue. And it is only because of her figure, how known she is and how much I respect her and especially how she started her career of being a woman in a, such a male-dominated world, especially with the Michelin stars that were only given to the males before and all of her history, you know, she was the figure to impress. Mm. And even when on my first bike, Paul said that 
he thinks there is too much alcohol in my cake. And then Prue actually stopped him and she said, I think the amount of alcohol is perfect. I was like, well, actually, none of you is right because it should be much more alcohol in this particular bake. But still, Prue, as someone who knows cuisine, who knows international food so much, she's basically knew that this particular bake, yes, it should be full of booze and that's what it should taste like. So I've actually managed to impress her with my first bake. And yeah, I was like, oh my God, she actually liked it. So I was always looking more up to Prue than Paul. Yeah. And I think that's fine because all of us have our favorite if it comes to judges. Some people are absolutely obsessed with Paul. I think he's a great baker. He's a very nice guy and he is amazing. But if I have to choose out of the store, I would choose Prue. I think go for the bird, go for the woman, I say. <laughs> I like well, your style. <laughs> I don't, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Buddy, um, what made you decide to apply for Bake Off? You're obviously so, a fan of the series, so you've watched a few. What made you actually say, right, I'm going to do it? So actually, I've never applied for Bake Off myself, really. Every single year, which was three times, it was my boyfriend who applied for me. And I've started really like getting my bakes on point when my boyfriend bought me a KitchenAid for Christmas. And that's when I started developing my bakes into something really beautiful and they looked taller. They looked really American style, you know, drip came about. And I've never applied for Bake Off and I would never apply myself because I would be thinking it is impossible to do a two-tier cake with some decoration and biscuits in four hours. And I would always say, no, it doesn't take four hours. It takes much more. And then my boyfriend was like, I believe you can do it. And well, yeah, I could, but it was very stressful. And normally you don't bake two-tier cakes at home in four hours, just so everyone knows. And to make it really clear to everyone, <laughs> that's like really pushing yourself to a limit. And when you, um, you, you obviously did lots of practicing. When did you do the practicing between the shows? Because it's quite intense, you know, you're there, you film. Do you film in the week, don't you? It used to be weekends, but you film during the week. Um, so basically, if it comes to filming, it sort of changed every sort of time they filmed. So I know that on the beginning, they used to film on the weekends, and then they used to film in a block, which means that everyone was going away, staying in a bubble, and we sort of filmed in blocks with really short breaks in between. So that didn't give you much time to practice. They gave you some recipes before, so you could practice before going to a tent. Unfortunately, it was all the recipe development because you cannot go on a show and show them a recipe that already exists on the internet. They've got the food tech team. They will know where you took it from and <laughs> will ask you to change. So there's really no point even trying to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to just download a recipe from this food blog. And yeah, so we knew that this won't be appreciated and that it would not go through and then you will have to change it anyway. So you have to develop the recipe and you have to practice the recipe. And probably you've got two days for one recipe. And you need to consider that people were working like me. I am a full-time worker, so I have to go to work, do my eight hours of work, come back home, develop the recipe, bake it, see what changes are required, redo the recipe, bake it again, done. Yes, that was a really intense period, and especially with me, because I've actually gave notice at my work on Monday. On Tuesday, Bake Off called me that 
actually I got on and I was thinking, oh my God, great. So I had to call my new employer and tell them there is a little problem with my start date. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you know, I just had to, in this instance, I had to break the secrecy and tell them, you know, uh, it is a secret, but I cannot start because I got on Bake Off. And I hope you're going to keep it secret because if it goes out, you know, I'm out of the tent as well. So I'm putting my trust in you, but that's why I cannot start next month. So they said, that's fine. Uh, just uh, give us a call when you can start. And then I was in the stand for all this time. <laughs> and like, I remember that before going to a semifinal, I received a text message from my boss saying, damn, you must be doing really well. You're still there. <laughs> <laughs> and as well, I bought a flat. So in this whole manic period when you're developing the recipes and trashing the kitchen every single day, my boyfriend was actually packing the flat. Oh my because god. Because the day I went to the tent was the day we moved into our new flat. Oh gosh, it, it does always so, happen like that, doesn't it? Everything at once. Oh yeah, yeah, because I remember that I think weekend before I got the phone call that I got on Bake Off, we both sat and said, Oh my god, I hope Bake Off will not call me because this is not the year to do Bake Off. <laughs> and of course, after we said it, it was just now, you know, it it was bound to happen that, yes, they will call me and say, yeah, you got on. <laughs> yeah, it's, always, it's always the way. Did you have to audition then? You had to take a, a cake and audition to get on the show? The application process to Bake Off is really complicated because there are so many applicants every year. They have to sort of screen them. So you start with an application form online, which is extremely long, takes around three, four hours to fill in. And of course, you can do it with ordering a takeaway and having a glass, well, or a bottle. I definitely prefer a bottle of wine. And just have fun with it. So if you're successful in this, you will receive a phone call from a production team and they will ask you multiple questions about everything and anything. And they, some will be cake-related, some will be about you, because I think at this stage, you've done the application form. Everyone knows you can bake. They've seen the photos. They screened you for this. And now it is the time to show your personality. So you go through these phone calls. You go from some Zoom invitations. Then you go uh, somewhere to present your bake, talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's, just as you're talking to me then and, and you talk, sort of mention personality, you've got such an infectious personality. You're so smiley. And, you know, you come over so beautifully. And whenever I, I talking to my friends and I was saying that I was going to be chatting to you on this podcast and they all were, oh, my God, I can't wait to meet him. Because so many of my friends work with us on the food festival. So you're going to meet all my friends and they all adore you. So you're going to have the best time at our food festivals because you're coming to um, Bradford and Avon in, in, in June and you're coming to Tame in September. And in September, you're going to be cooking. You're just going to be having a chat with our lovely Simon Brown um in in june um which is very exciting and everybody just loves you so i can imagine that when you went in there with your for your you know to come and meet them they would have taken one look at you and said yes yes we're having him on the show um well yes and no because last year when i've actually applied i was shortlisted oh. and i never made it to them no. no well but then maybe they thought well we'll have him the next year then <laughs> I Maybe that's what they thought. I think that's what happened because I remember that last year it was such a 
such a long process as well. Like everything was so difficult. And this year it seems to just flow. And the conversation were nice. There was no grilling about baking. It was all like, oh, like I had one chat with someone just purely about Nintendo Switch games for like 45 minutes. And we were talking about Pokemon and Zelda for 45 <laughs> minutes. So it was completely like uh, different. Like there was no questions like, what is the temperatures of tempering chocolate? And you're just sitting there thinking, I'm going to Google for it. <laughs> well, normally. <laughs> So I know there is no Google intent because we find out hard way that you cannot have your phones and you cannot Google stuff you wanted to Google normally. <laughs> when, do, when do you eat um, during the, the filming process? Because it seems quite intense. And obviously, you've got two days filming. The first day, you do the technical and um, your own version of uh, the dish. And then you do the signature on the next day. That's next day is the... Showstopper. Oh, showstopper. So sorry, not signature. Signature, yeah, signature and technical, technical on the and first the day. Yeah. Yeah. People probably don't realize, but you start baking super early, and by super early, yes, I mean super early. So you probably have to squeeze some breakfast in you at six a.m. There is there was actually really amazing food this year because I was told by production team that apparently last year wasn't that great. It was okay, but this year was particularly good, and I need to agree. Yes. So there was plenty of choices of food in the morning. Unfortunately, it was 6 a.m. And me not being such a morning person, 6 a.m. is a horrendous time to eat. Even though I love eating, 6 a.m. is not time to eat. So I remember that me and Dawn would always try to squeeze a porridge in us because then we knew that, well, lunch break is a couple of hours ahead. Of course, in the meantime, there will be uh, staff coming in with some little things that were deep fried or like pieces of chicken. There will be spring rolls. There will be egg rolls. Like, you know, so you can pick on as you're baking. And then, of course, when you've got the little break, they will give you like some stuff to pick on as well, like finger sandwiches. There was always plenty of food around. I'm not going to lie. Then you had lunch probably... I would say around 12, 30, 12. Difficult to say because none of us has watches. Oh, none gosh. of us have mobile phones. When you're in a tent, you're in a different time zone. Like the tent is the time zone because you don't know what time it is. And you're just thinking, well, it can be easily four o'clock, but easily it can be two o'clock. Like you just don't know. And um, a lot of people that I've spoken to, I've spoken to a lot of people who've been on the show over the years and um, the thing that they always say is that you you always know when you're just about to have a disaster or something doesn't happen, there'll be a scuttle of feet behind you and a cameraman will suddenly come from nowhere and he'll be right in there watching your disaster. Well, yes, that is correct. It's a TV show. So they want to have this on there. And you know what? Like They need to show it as well because just to make sense for the viewers because... Put yourself in a viewer's shoes. You're watching something, someone produces something, goes really well, and then suddenly it's all floppy. Like, what happened there? Like, from the viewer's point of view, you need to see how this happened as well. So they need to be really observant as well. And I remember on one particular bake, and it was during pudding week, we were making those big mousses in a teams that were supposed to serve at least 25 people. So they had to be gigantic. I don't know why 25 people don't ask me, but that's what they wanted. <laughs> um, and I remember that I was putting those mousses in and I was really desperate to the toilet, but I was like, okay, I need to finish putting those mousses in so they can go to the freezer and then I can run to the toilet. So 
You know, when you're desperate for a toilet, you behave tiny bit like you're nervous. So I was standing from one leg to another, from one leg to another, piping those mooses in. And suddenly I just looked up and I had three cameras in my face and a story producer. And the story producer noticed that I'm looking at her. So she was like, okay, so please, can you tell me why you are so nervous? What's happening? And I just looked at her and I was like, oh, I'm not nervous. I just really need to go to the <laughs> toilet. You can see those three people basically disappearing from your way because they are like, okay, nothing is going on. <laughs> like, well, you can go. And I was like, I will, but this needs to go to the freezer first. I'm not behind the schedule. <laughs> so in four hours, when you're working with gelatin, you even need to plan your toilet breaks. Yeah, you do. So yeah. Oh, it sounds like you have... Oh, yeah, but it was really funny. But that's what happens. That's what happens because they know that something might be going wrong. And then how would they explain to someone that I've done everything as I should and then suddenly there is a disaster? So from their point of view, I do completely ag agree with it because, you know, when you, you know you're going through a show, you know you're going to be baking in front of camera, so you need to accept that things will go wrong because they will. Everyone is bound to have a, at least one horrible thing happening to them, not turning your oven, not seeing your cares, like something will happen and the viewers need to understand that this happened and that's why now yeah. the outcome is. Yeah, and people love Jeopardy as well, don't they? And I think if you have a few little disasters, they come with you on your story and your, and your journey. I mean, the word journey gets so overused, like the word passionate gets so overused, but it's true. People will attach themselves to you and they'll go with you with your story as as it develops all the way through the series. I I think you, I think it sounds like you had the best time. And um, it would if they're going to ask you back to go and do like a a New Year's Bake Off or a Christmas Bake Off, you'll be straight in there, will you? Oh yeah, of course. But <laughs> now it's up to the production team. What is their plan for me? Yeah. Or if there's any. Yeah. Well, I think it's brilliant, and we are so looking forward to having you at the festivals this year. We had last year at Tame, we had Giuseppe up on the stage with us and Jürgen as well. And I know um, Prue kept calling you Jürgen, didn't she? In the city when you were well, cooking. It. Yes. Yes. It was really funny because I remember that was one bake. She was judging my showstopper. And she said, really well done, Jürgen. And I was thinking, oh, there's a joke I never like understand now in the moment. So I just went there, picked it up, and they were like, no, hold on. She just called you again. I was like, oh, I was thinking, no. <laughs> oh, do you know, he's so sweet. He came on stage with his trombone. He was playing his trombone. Oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. So I've got um, a final question for you. Um, obviously, we're really looking forward to you coming and joining us, and I can't wait to eat one of your bakes um, in September. Um but I always have this question that I ask everybody, and I think you might have some fun with this. What is your 50 shades of food? Okay, so imagine 50 shades, the book, and then think 50 shades of food. So this is something that you want to eat alone, right? Maybe with the, the curtains closed, the door locked, you know, something a bit sticky, something a bit naughty. What is your 50 shades of food? I you do keep looking at you them. keep looking at your boyfriend Simon when I ask you that question. <laughs> yes, because people I have the same answer, and I know that he's gonna love it. And there's something we have when we feel like yes, we had a terrible time, and now it's time to relax, and none of us wants to cook. 
Well, not that he does. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't have to. Uh, it will be something we called in our household British tapas. Right. And British tapas is basically beige buffet. <laughs> so beige tapas. Anything coated with breadcrumbs, anything that goes into the oven, uh, then you can basically bake it. So I'm talking from chicken nuggets up to uh, prawns in tempura butter. So anything beige that you serve with dipping sauce. That's (laughs) that's my dirty Fifty Shades pleasure. Oh, no. British tapas. British tapas. I love that. That is brilliant. John and I, we, we've just had this virus and we've both been unwell. And we went to M&S and they had the M&S prawn party food. I tell you what, a couple of packet of those in the oven with some chilli. I'm with you. I'm with you on this. I love the name Beige Buffet. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. I think that's just wonderful. Oh, that's brilliant. I think it's the best one yet. Thank you so much. I am so looking forward to seeing you in person in June. Um, We're going to have some fun. We're just going to have a lovely chat with you with Simon Brown, who is our uh, compere. He also works in TAME in September as well, so you'll get to know him. Um, It's a beautiful part of the world. It's right by the river. Bring Simon. Bring Nigel. We have a dog show. We have a fun dog show. We do. (laughs) So um, he might even win a little prize. It should be lovely. Anyway, you take care. Thank you so much, Janice. It's been a joy. Thank you so, so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was amazing. And yes, I will see you soon. Now, meet our friend Sarah Wyndham Lewis, Honey Sommelier. There is nothing that she doesn't know about honey. The nuances of flavour that come from flora and terroir. The viscosity, the shine and glistening texture, the mouthfeel. But not only that, Sarah tells us about the fraudulent trade of honey honey laundering, fake honey, and the big corrupt business that is behind so much honey sitting on our supermarket shelves. It's eye-opening. Sarah Wyndham-Lewis, honey sommelier, good friend. Um, I have met you, oh goodness me, I'm thinking now, probably a couple of two, three years ago at Great Taste when you did the most incredible masterclass um, on honey. And you taught me so much. I thought I knew honey. And I'd been judging it, and I I just thought, I don't know anything. And, you know, I, I knew nothing compared to what I know now, because I've just spent an hour of, you know, an hour in the company of you, learning mm. about honey, tasting honey, all the different nuances. You know, it, it, you are incredible at what you do, and your knowledge is vast. And, um, and I could talk to you for hours. In fact, actually, I seem to remember talking to you and your husband, Dale, beekeeper extraordinaire, it- over dinner in London, just before mm. lockdown, wasn't it? It was just before lockdown yeah. when we did And all night I was just chatting to Dale about beekeeping and bees. And, and you said, I'm so sorry, you know, if, if, if he's been talking too much. I said, he's, no, no, I could have done this for hours. I just find the whole subject fascinating. I love bees. And it's so lovely oh. to know somebody who knows as much as you do about it. It's the point, Lost, you know, where... He... People who he's talking to get this glazed look in their eyes, and I think they possibly do need rescuing. They didn't know what they'd started when they asked him this innocent question. <laughs> oh, no, I just, I thought it was fascinating. I learned so much. So, you know, you're, you and Dale started up Bermondsey Street Bees together, and you yep. have, uh, together, there were hives all over London. Do you still have many hives in London? 
No, I mean, we've been right from the very beginning, we've been much more about bee welfare than we have been about honey production. Uh, and it was very cool when we started rooftop beekeeping in London, uh, which was 17, 18 years ago. Uh, there really weren't a lot of bees in, in London. Now, unfortunately, what happened is two things. One is that London's green space has continued to shrink uh, because people are building new buildings and tidying up railway sidings or tarmacking over their driveways, whatever it may be. Uh, and also hobby beekeeping struck London big time. Uh, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, uh, that resulted in a lot of disease and a lot of hives dying, uh, and and we didn't want our bees to be any part of that. Uh, and we were very aware of the fact that our bees were in, in danger of starving. Uh, and so, uh, the smallest inkling of that, obviously, as professional beekeepers, we're going to do something about that and move them. So we we were just unbelievable bit of luck. Um, the the Royal Docklands have got uh, below the Thames Barrier is wild still. It will be built on in due course, but um, we had a contact who who represented them and said to us, would we like to come and put some bees down in that wonderful wilderness down there? Uh, and so we said, oh, yes, please, and put a couple of trial hives down. The bees were sensationally happy, making the most amazing honey. And uh, so we, uh, we knew also that they weren't going to be foraging at the expense of any other sorts of, of pollinators because they are a bit like a hoover honeybees. They will eat everything, uh, you know, every bit of pollen and nectar going. They're not very good at sharing with other bees. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, it, it was just like all the stars aligned we we wanted to move our hives out of London uh, we felt they weren't going to be happy there for long we felt also from a sustainability point of view we didn't want to be seen as as you know sort of robber barons of the very limited resources of, of, of that sort of frail ecosystem in inner London uh, and and there was presented to us a, this this fantastic opportunity so that's what we've been doing for a good few years now so the only bees that we've got left in London and in places we just absolutely know that they're, they're safe and well so um, we keep the bees for the Archbishop of Canterbury at Lambeth Palace and that's an 800 year old garden there have been bees there for 800 years uh, and and we're the inheritor of that tradition wow. uh, the so lush and and you know the bees are really really happy there and there's an also you can see there's a huge biodiversity of pollinators living alongside our honeybees uh, so we we can feel very happy that those bees are, are in a good place um, and, and yes just a few other places where again we can be sure and and then we've you know, as a final straw, as you know, moved ourselves out to muddy Essex, <laughs> which has been a big, you know, big deal, actually, <laughs> leaving Bermondsey Street. <laughs> I know, I can imagine, I mean, it is from one extreme to another, really, isn't it? Yeah. Living in yeah. a very busy area to, as you said to me earlier on, a place that gets dark very early at the moment. <laughs> A bit of de-stressing in, in that way is no no bad thing. And also, also, it gives me four acres to practice my pollinator planting wilds in. And that's just magical, just magical. Because, of course, you've written a book called um, Planting for Bees, haven't you? Which yeah. you sent me. I remember you said, and yeah. I loved it. And, oh. and also, it's because it's also got so much information about honeybees as well. Honeybees live in trees given half a chance uh, 
and they live at about three metres high, uh, and that's what they forage on, so they depend on trees for their core forage. Uh, Unlike a lot of wild bees who are much more interested in wildflowers, wildflowers Honeybees will eat them, but they're not a primary resource for them. So they're they're very they're very very different creatures. And um, yeah, honeybees have very specific requirements, uh, particularly if you want to divert them from eating everybody else's food, which is important. <laughs> so what do you plant? What have you planted and will be planting in uh, your? Well, garden? we're lucky. We've inherited an awful lot of trees in this space. We've got an orchard, and we've got um, a, a fantastic number of good, well-established bushes, which is sort of. I always say to people, a, a bush is just a small tree. You know, if you if you you want to divide them up, then that's a quite an artificial gardenery sort of thing to do. But if you just look at it like an amateur, you go, that is a tall thing. That's a tree. That's a smaller thing. Looks like a tree. That's a bush, uh, and that's. <laughs> feeds bees absolutely admirably Uh, and then the other big thing is herbaceous perennials that is the thing to plant Uh, and specifically if you've only got a small space plant herbs plant mint and and oregano and things like that but the thing (laughs) ridiculous thing is I swear honestly when I first started planting you know whenever it was a million years ago because I'd grown up with a mother who had a kitchen garden she trained me as you pass through your herb garden you take the tops off all the time to stop them flowering it took me two years to work out that if you do that there's nothing for the bees yes yes exactly <laughs> yes it's so true so you you sacrificing now all your culinary you know herbal necessity for the bees <laughs> It, it works. I do half and half generally. So I'll keep half the bed to, and just let it bolt, uh, or one pot for them and, and one pot for me. But increasingly, I'm getting used to eating older herbs, frankly. And yeah. just you know, and I dry a lot of them to make tisanes during the winter. And and so you know, nothing goes to waste. And the, the, the you know, something like thyme flowers are so delicious if you just if you just put them in a herb tea and really good. That sore throat you've had would, would be it, uh, some honey and some thyme flowers. Yes, they'd sort it, wouldn't it? Honey sommelier, mm. and, and a sommelier meaning knowledge. You know, you have the knowledge about it all, and yeah. you you impart and and obviously tell everyone about it. How does where does that take you? You know, when when you when I when I met you because you gave us this fantastic masterclass. But as a honey yeah. sommelier, where does that take you through work and travel and all over the world. I mean, I, I, I sometimes I just think I'm, I'm the luckiest person alive. Um, I generally only work with food professionals, food and drink professionals, um, because they're such brilliant ambassadors. So if I'm if I'm training them, they're going to go out and they're going to understand the difference between you know real honey and and that you know the rubbish squeezy stuff that supermarkets pretend it's honey uh, and and hopefully you know my mission is to stop there being a jar of squeezy on the back bar of every bartender set up and and in in every commercial kitchen uh, because believe you me they are there um, but mostly because you know people with professional palates are incredibly responsive to to delicacies of things um, and and so for me there's a I'm learning from them at the same time so uh, I, I do quite a lot of fun gigs with very small honey producers uh, and helping them sort of understand their products and represent it better. Uh, and I did a glorious one with the Greek government where I had 40 different honeys from young producers in Greece to play with. Uh, and we did a press event together and, and that was that was fun. 
Um, I do, I train brigades of, you know, sort of Michelin star kitchens and stuff, which is, again, really interesting for me. And I work a lot on development with people. So particularly cocktail development, different honeys. We did this thing once where we took a whiskey sour, a same whiskey, everything the same, made with three different fabulous honeys. And you, you just couldn't even believe the difference. The bartender was just blown away by it. Uh, and it, was, it had been her idea in the first place, but I don't think she'd ever quite clocked how amazing this was going to be. Um, and, and that involves me literally doing, you know, sort of Instagram lives all over the world with bars and restaurants you know working i'm i'm not trying to i'm not trying to sell or rep our honey this is me talking about honey in a wider sense and trying to persuade people to connect with their local beekeepers to support their local beekeepers uh, again rather than buy this sort of amorphous global product which is called honey uh, and isn't in fact honey uh, so it's about authenticity i mean i think you know with anybody who's a sommelier uh, whether wine or or lovely harry with his mustard or whatever I think for all of us, the thing that unites all of those disciplines is, is authenticity. We actually want to look and say, is, is this the real thing? Uh, if it is the real thing, how do I explain it? You know, how do I quantify it? And how do I rate it? You know, is it, is it good, bad or ugly? Which is something we had some fun with when we did that masterclass, wasn't it? There yes. were some evil honeys in there. Yes, yeah. Which, you know, they were probably, they, I think they were from memory. They weren't. Uh, corrupted honey in terms of they they weren't you know blended or anything they just weren't terribly good uh, yeah. or you know something wrong had happened to them uh, so all of those things are considerations but primarily for me one of the the biggest biggest things is honey authenticity because that's a such a problem nowadays yeah honey I mean honey fraud is massive and you've written about this and you've spoken about this an awful lot and when yeah. you told us about it I would I just thought I had never even considered it before. But yeah. it's one of the top three bastardised foods in the world, that olive oil and wine. Those three yeah. are, you know, and, and a lot of people don't know that. So please tell everybody. Well, you know, I actually think that we're now looking at the single biggest food fraud that has ever been perpetrated globally, and it's hiding in plain sight. The problem is, unlike, for instance, you know, if you got a, if you got a meat pie and it turned out to have horse meat in it, that's quite easily spotted by a laboratory. They can look at the DNA and say, well, that's got horse meat. The trouble is that the bees are foraging all over the place. The profiles of the nectars that people are trying to analyse, the nectars being the sugars, which is which is the problematic part of honey, uh, they could they can come from plants that haven't been had their you know their profiles put into any database or anything uh and and so they will then show up as being perhaps something that's tricky when in fact they're not or uh, so here's here's i'm not going to name names but a very well-known european country very well known uh, if small producer of honey a traditional producer of honey uh now finds it cheaper to pay the chinese to create a nature identical version of their honey which then is imported back into europe not as honey it's not labeled honey it'll be labeled something like wallpaper paste or something uh and and so you know it gets under the under the radar and the next thing you know is it's on on the shelves of shops who you know they may think they're selling something okay 
that's that that's one sort of class of fraud the other is just the blending so you know <laughs> my mantra is you look at the label if it says the word blend on the back you put it straight down because if it's blended that is an aggressive physical process during which there's lots of opportunities to actually adulterate the honey uh, with sugars that may or may not ever be picked up by all this battery of sophisticated tests because um Dale, my husband, often makes an equation between honey and the drugs trade. It's a very, very similar thing. There's a tremendous amount of money to be made through adulteration and through sort of fairly shady distribution. Um, but, of course, nobody's going to send you to prison for selling dodgy honey. So, actually, it is now the province of organised crime, honey fraud. Uh, it, really seriously. And, and, and I am talking about labels that are sitting on our supermarket shelves Labels that people will reach out for thinking that they are a good product uh, because they've seen all these ads saying, you know, these people are saving British beekeeping and stuff. Uh, and and those those are the ones that I think are the most pervasive uh, of all frauds because you can't, you can't buy in, in Aldi 89p for 300 grams of honey. I mean, nobody can produce that it's just not possible to produce honey for that sort of price and now so if you saw a bottle of wine for 89p instead of 10.99 you think well that's clearly patently rubbish but nobody's used to that equation in honey they don't realize it should cost 10.99 so when they see it for 89p they think oh bargain yeah and you know feed it to their children and grandchildren and and it's not even faintly honey interestingly a human palate in the end, is probably the most sensitive judge of whether honey's been adulterated or not. Um, you know, we, that's that, that's why the honey sommelier course that I, I trained in initially. That's why they exist because they they are sitting in panels as the arbiters of whether something is is true and real and should have its um, you know its certificate of authenticity. Not nothing of that sort exists in the UK at all, sadly. God, it's it's frightening, and of course the knock-on effect is <sighs> is the fact that the bees are going to die because they're not being looked after, or they're just being you yeah. know they're there's no food for them, or no. hives are going to be given up because people can't make any money from producing no. their honey. No. And, and we, we do need, need, and we them, need we... them. We need them for biodiversity yeah. and to the, keep us alive. The, the conservationists are getting increasingly anti honey bee um, because people beekeepers have historically been pretty arrogant uh, and and disregarding the fact that you know their bees are not a not an entity a be all and end all of the oh, sorry of the world um but they exist within a you know far bigger story of biodiversity uh but i think that's changing now i think they're becoming much more sensitive to the fact that there's a lot of other bees that need to be fed out there but the, you know, the point is that honeybees can be they're bred, they're managed like sheep or hens, so there is no shortage of them in the world. Uh, the, the United Nations keeps a tab on, 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 um, on hive numbers globally, and it's risen and risen and risen steadily since the 1960s. Um, so these are hives under management, and they are, you know, they're fulfilling pollination services to, you know, whether you agree or not with, with you know, monoculture and mass agricultural production, uh, the reality is that a lot of our food does come from that, unless we're very lucky, we grow it ourselves or we have terrific small producers around us. You know, if you go to a supermarket, you're generally going to be buying something that is a product of mass production in the fruit and veg line, and that demands quite a lot of bees. 
Uh, and so, yes, if they're if they're going hungry or they're, uh, you know, there's, there's problems with them. Uh, and there was a terrible, terrible survey uh, in the European Union just just before Brexit. Um, so the, the big farmers unions came together, sort of co-op called Copa Cojeca. They did a report which said that there were about 10 million hives going to be lost from European agriculture due to cheap honey imports, making it impossible for anyone who kept bees to make any sort of living. So they were just, you know, essentially abandoning them and walking away, which, uh, and you think, and, and there's nothing replacing that, nothing at all. So, yeah, it, it fundamentally strikes at the heart of agriculture. We've got to have a sort of, you know, I, I'm very... I'm very involved with trying to understand and, and implement and, and support regenerative agriculture. I think it's the only way forward, really. Uh, you know, hopefully people will start to see that. And as part of that, we need to find a role for honeybees that is the appropriate level uh, that also supports um, other pollinators in, in, in doing their work around the, the food products on which we depend. But at the moment, the whole thing is, a, you know, a hot, smelly mess, really. And, and if beekeepers are just saying, I cannot, I cannot run my beekeeping practice uh, and, and, you know, selling it or, or doing whatever they're doing. In, in the end, that ends up with an absolute disaster for all of us. Uh, so we've got, to, we've got to find a lovely balance. That's, I, I guess, what one's always striving for in anything to do with food production, isn't it? Is, is that there, there'd be balance yeah. in it. There's the a way it's generated. There's, there's a balance, but I mean, obviously, you you know, you're you're an activist in this area. You know, you feel very strongly about it. And can we lobby, you know, Defra, the government, to try and stop these imports and stop these companies bringing in the fake honey and putting them on well, the shelves? There is there is an, uh, on Facebook. I'm not a great Facebook person, so you know, this isn't really my area. But there's a group with which we work, which is called H A N Han Honey Authenticity Network. They are really, really trying to uh, to get British beekeepers and supporters of British beekeeping to rally around. There is, I think, currently a petition which Hound have got open, uh, which is is saying, you know, let's um, let's look at this again. But whenever I mean, during the time I've been working this, I think we've had three or four goes at this, quite serious goes and well backed. And that the problem always comes down to the fact that the fraudsters are way, way ahead of the science of detecting fraud, um, which is which is horrendous, isn't it? I mean, there's no other food stuff that you could, you could say that about, really. Um, it, it's just such a complicated food stuff. I mean, any you know, any one bee might be bringing in food, any one hive might be bringing in food from 150 different sources. If you've got 150 different sugar profiles uh, that's got to be identified, uh, and actually there's, you know, 170 in there because there's quite a lot of hidden stuff, that's probably going to go unnoticed or or whatever. I, I also think there's a significant lack of will because really what we should be doing and, and we jolly we've tried jolly hard to make this work too and it's it's floundered is to actually have uh, a sort of a, like a red tractor scheme, you know, so that you yes. you literally have a, a proven uh Maybe in New Zealand they're doing this with with manuka, or, or where you literally have a code on the back of a jar, and it takes you straight to the producer. Yeah. So 
that I think would really help people to be able. But in the meantime, if you if just avoid anything that says blend, and it was seen in the smallest writing you've ever seen. I mean, I, my eyes are so rubbish now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's designed not to be seen, really, but they have to have it there to say it's a blend. And, and you'll get these things saying, oh, we're supporting British beekeeping. You look and it says a blend of, it'll still say, a blend of, of European or non-E you honeys or, or whatever it may be and the, the simple reality is the majority of it of these honeys have their origins in china yeah. in in huge factories and at the, at the back end of that even if they were producing proper honey which they're not because for very complicated reasons they're, what they're producing does not qualify as honey under world regulations. Um, there's slave labour, the slave labour of humans and the slave labour of bees at the back of that, which makes it, you know, even regardless of whether it's, it's you know, full of rubbish or not, it's still something I want to avoid is anything which, which is, is putting uh, people's you know, lives at risk. And don't even get me started on almond milk. <laughs> The biggest killer of bees in the world. Yes, yes, it is. Terrible, terrible. Yeah. It's production. Just utterly shocking. Working in fields full of pesticides, these poor bees. Ultimately, for people to support the beekeeper and to look after our bees, we have to buy honey mm. from a beekeeper. Or at least from a corner shop. I've got a shop yeah. here that has local honey you know yeah, that you somebody have... a trustworthy sort of third party who's who's creating it mm. for you no i bet buy an awful lot of honey from small producers all over the world it's really not that hard mm. i buy it on ebay sometimes you know and I, I just i just have a look at them i have a look at their operation i look up their website and you know you you know if you if you meet a, a, a basically a you know a, a, a horny handed son of the soil at the other end of that website, which is what I would count as 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 well. Yeah. Real people working with yeah. the hives. Um then it's worth a shot, you know. And as I would say, if you if something you buy, you know, even if it's it, it, it sort of comes from an, a great source or whatever, if you don't like it, you can put it on your hair. Works really well. Best hair pack known to man. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I used to, we, when we had a cafe, we used to go to a local beekeeper and we buy our jars of honey and mm. we'd only mark it up a, a quid, I don't, not very much because it was fairly pricey to buy it in. I think we sold it for about five pounds, you know, for a jar. People used to complain about the price, but you know, even then I'd say, well, it's, it's from the bees around the corner. You know, it's not off the shelf. It's not that particular name of honey that you, that you squeeze out of a bottle. This yeah. is the, is the good stuff. Now I have a judging lots of honeys one of my favorites is a chestnut honey yes i just love a chestnut honey I think lovely 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 just one of and you know what chestnut honey uh medically stacks up pretty well against manuka manuka which is probably forged forged uh, because there's so much money in the manuka things possibly selling for 60 or 80 pounds a jar and you can go and buy a really decent greek italian spanish chestnut for you know really not a lot of money and it's pretty much just as medicinal as that manuka, but also it's 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 a weird one, isn't it? Once you get a taste for it, you oh, it, you can't it. you can't stop scratching the itch because it's just so weird. Well, it's the mothball, isn't it? It's that mothbally yeah. sort of note. Yeah. I yeah. Do, 
sort of bitters, that hugely sort of like chewing on a twig bitters sort yeah. of thing. And then that's that sort of, and you're always thinking, where's the sweetness, where's the sweetness? And bang, there it is, just, just that little tiny corner of it that yields the sweetness. Because again, I think people are, you know, very much attuned to thinking of honey as something that is sweet and egg is a sweetener and can be you know is an alternative to to a spoonful of sugar or whatever it may be but there's so many honeys which are tart or you know, really acidic or bitter or you know taste like guinness you know some some of them uh, and so my one of my favorites is buckwheat because um buckwheat's always described by honey sommeliers as a zoo in a jar because you take the lid off it smells like something you know an animal has has been in a stable and then you put it in your mouth you get past that smell and it, it blossoms into ribena and all these incredible berry fruits and you say how can this be how can this possibly be so that's another one i always say to people you'll find it in a health food shop buckwheat honey comes from you know all over europe because they grow it for you know for the buckwheat to make kasha and all of those sorts of things uh, and and buckwheat pancakes and things and um and it's just heavenly so what is your 50 shades of food um, I have to confess to it being cheap chocolate. Um, you know, a, a Kit Kat or a Bounty Bar is or crunchy. I mean, it's very low. There's a lot of childhood memories in in those things of treats in childhood. This, but um, you know. <laughs> In a way, sometimes all this wonderful chocolate that we get to taste and great taste towards and stuff and in other exciting sort of things we do, um, it's slightly wasted. Because <laughs> I, I get it. I appreciate its finesse uh, and, and, you know, can comment and, and understand the care and the love. But, you know, there's just something about that awful sweetness. <laughs> so we love galaxy, galaxy chocolate for me. I love yeah. galaxy or Terry's chocolate orange. Oh, no, 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 can't oh. do chocolate. Oh, oh no, no, you're giving oh, me goosebumps now. Oh, really? Cannot, cannot do chocolate <laughs> and orange. It's like egg and tomato, cannot do egg and tomato. Well, I There's something that, about the yeah. acidity yeah. of it that is just, no, no, but um, I can see why you would. And, and um, you know, I, I'm one of those kind people who leave the Terry's chocolate orange for other people Oh, to eat. I love you it's even more yeah. now, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, I know what to give you for Christmas. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, it, it, it's the same thing, isn't it? it, it it's a memory it is it is definitely sort of a comfort blanket that sort of stuff isn't yeah. it? it takes you back to wherever and whenever yeah. uh, and uh, you know I remember being absolutely horrible to my children about chocolate when they were little, and then people would give them chocolate at parties and I would eat it <laughs> brilliant brilliant okay. did you did you when they were little and you wanted something because you know when you when the kids are little and you want to eat something they're like what are you eating go, what are you eating and you're just like just leave me alone i want to eat this. i used to go in the loo whisk oh. chocolate and just on my own so she didn't know daisy had no idea what are you doing there nothing no. <laughs> i think i used to Oh, on the way to or from the school run, you know, yes. and then have to scrunch up the remains and find it in a pocket about three weeks later. Yes. <laughs> and those calories are living. Yes. Squirreling <laughs> it all away. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you, Sarah, oh. so much. It's been an absolute joy. And you are going to be at Bradford on Avon Food and Drink Festival. <laughs> this summer in June and you're going to be there for two days you're going to have a stall selling all your wares and your books your brand new book coming out which is called it's called the wild bee handbook wonderful so you're going to be doing that a masterclass and an interview on both days yes. with Simon in our masterclass interview uh, tent can't wait it's going to be lovely I, to have you there I, 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 <laughs>
look forward to it and yeah and hopefully see you before as well yeah definitely would be great taste judging we'll see i'll see you there all right thanks so much bye now i bet you had no idea about any of that thank you sarah for telling us and thank you for all your work helping our lovely bees so that's it for this week a buzzy busy sweet honey pot of fantastic people who are here because they love food and drink and as i always say the people who do love food are always the best people to be around Next time, you'll meet the fabulous Joe Horn, who is another director of Tame Food Festival and heads up the volunteers, alongside much support and help during setup week. We're flying over to Greece to talk olive oil and mustard with Harry Lelousis, and then off to Bath to speak to Planty Kate about her fragrance, skincare and candle business. See you next time. We hope you like listening to our podcast. We just love producing it. If you think you know someone that would enjoy listening to it too, please share and pass on. Please like and follow us on the platform you listen with. We are on Instagram, Truly Scrumptious Podcast, and of course there are our festivals where this podcast stems from. Bradford on Avon Food and Drink Festival and Tame Food Festival. Website links are on our profile, but just Google them and you'll find us. And buy tickets to visit. Thanks again for listening.